0: Well, uh, we are. We're in chapter 17, where as we continue through the life of David, uh, last week we saw his uh, uh, um, humble calling and his uh, uh, early uh, life as he uh, was out in the fields with the sheep. That's what God had called him to. And uh, we saw that he was the youngest of his family. And uh, when it comes to things of... um, battle and war we're going to find out and have found out that you know he is sort of the last one that even his family thought about and uh tonight we're going to come to a very famous story but remember i don't think you can uh know the life of david unless you know the life of saul and we talked about that a little bit last week saul was god or excuse me man's pick of a king God had always intended to pick a king, but in his time and in his way, and that man was David. But the people got ahead of God and uh, decided that they wanted to pick sooner than that and picked Saul, who, as you can remember, or if I didn't point this out, I'm pointing it out now, was handsome, very handsome guy. He had the, all the looks. He had all the image. He has all the cool. In fact, he said he was, he was head and shoulders above everyone in Israel. He was a tall guy. And so we uh, saw that Saul, his ministry uh, was taken from him by God, and he was rejected as the king uh, because of a number of things, and we talked about that. And we see in these several chapters that we're going to continue on through that the life of David in terms of his devotion and um, uh, God's favor goes up, and the life of Saul sort of spirals downward. And you'll see that as we uh, continue on. And uh, we saw last week that David was anointed king in front of his family only. And then he was playing the harp for Saul when a distressing spirit came upon him. And so now we are going to turn to a very famous chapter. But I was thinking about this today and how to introduce this. And I I remember in um, uh, 1983 or 84, uh, I played basketball for a high school in Ohio. And uh, every uh, preseason, we would go up to Kent and play Kent High School in a scrimmage and then the next, that would be on a Friday, and then the next morning we would get up real early and we'd travel to Cleveland State and uh, we would play four or five games that day. A lot of teams from all over Northern Ohio would go and it would be a preseason scrimmage or scrimmages. And I can remember coming around the corner and boom, I walked into somebody and this person was in the doorway, with I can still see him, with his feet crossed. And he was the tallest human being I'd ever seen in my life. I can't believe how tall he was. And I talked to some of the guys on the team and we sort of didn't know who it was and, you know, who is this? Is it an NBA player? Who is this person? And I remember uh, a couple years later, I think maybe, uh, anyway, uh, with my friends uh, on the basketball team, and this man got um, drafted into the NBA, and his name was Manute Bol. Manute Bol was seven foot seven, and uh, he was asked to come to Cleveland State and play for them. But Manute Bol didn't know his birthday, and so they couldn't have a, a right uh, birth certificate or whatever. He was from, I think, Sudan or somewhere somewhere in Africa. I don't. Maybe I have the um, country wrong, but. Uh, Anyway, it turns out he never played for Cleveland State. He went somewhere else and then was drafted in 85 or 86. And that's where we saw him and we're like, wow. We saw Manute Bull. Now Manute Bull was seven foot seven. He was the biggest human being I've ever seen in my life, but he weighed about 140 pounds. I don't know if it was 140, but it was really thin. And uh, uh, when we get to this chapter, Uh, the person in this chapter makes Manute Bull look like a shorty. uh, Because the Bible tells us that Goliath was really, really big. And scholars have indicated that he was somewhere between eight foot. And some people go up all the way as far as, you know, 11 or 12 feet. But whatever, he was a big guy. You know, in uh, uh, 1940, a man died in Illinois. His name was Robert Wadlow. He lived in Illinois. Robert Wadlow, uh, born during the 20s, died in 1940, was 8 feet 11 inches tall. Isn't that incredible? 8 feet 11 inches tall, he would just make Manute Bull look like a very short person. And yet, uh, Goliath quite possibly could have been bigger than that, and maybe even more, um, you know, thick and and uh, uh, strong. And so we get into this and we see uh, we're going to tackle this chapter from two different angles. Uh, Here's the first angle we're going to see. We're going to look at it because uh, David was called a man after God's own heart. David is actually never described during his time as a man after God's own heart. God said when he was rejecting Saul that he was going to pick in his stead a man after God's own heart. And then later in Acts, someone else calls David a man after God's own heart. But I think if you watch this, you're going to see what can be developed in a godly person's life by the Lord if he or she adheres to the things that David adhered to, does the things that David did. And, uh, we're going to attack it that way on one hand. And on the other hand, we're going to look at this, that, you know, on the road to Emmaus, everybody know that story after Jesus died and rose again and two uh, disciples are walking with him and they don't uh, initially recognize him. And then wouldn't you have loved to have been part of this Bible study? Because the Bible says that Jesus took open the Old Testament, went through the history books of the Old Testament and the prophets and showed these disciples everything in the Bible, all these different books, he showed that they all pointed to him, Jesus. And remember, it says that uh, the disciples' hearts burned within them. And so we're going to take a look at two things. One, uh, how and why is David a man after God's own heart? And two, how is David a picture of Christ? Because you see Christ in everything, and in fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Bible tells us that the Old Testament was written as a type and shadow. The Old Testament is real history, but they, it's written and it happened as a type and shadow of the reality of the things to come, Christ. And So that's what we're going to do. So let's just jump right in. This is around 1024 BC. I think that's important so that you orient yourself to where we are in the Bible, 1024 BC, and it says the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. Now, you have to know this, or you're never going to get anything out of this, is that the Philistines were lifelong, always Old Testament enemies of the people of God. And they constantly, in First and Second Samuel, are fighting off the Philistines. And they lived in a little area you might have heard about. It's called Gaza. They were a seafaring people who came from Crete, I believe the Bible says. And they lived there and became enemies. And they had several cities down that way. And we encounter them in the Bible. But what's interesting about this right off the bat is you might just think this is just some geography here, but the Bible's telling you more than this. The Bible's saying that the enemies of God are in the place of the people of God, which is Judah. You get it? In other words, they've crept up and taken territory from the people of God. And you can attribute that to Saul paying more attention to fighting off David because he was jealous and bitter and angry uh, than you do... uh, 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 then you can even uh, give the Philistines credit for. I mean, the Philistines were good and good fighters, but Saul wasn't paying attention, in other words. Do you get it? And uh, this story here, in some ways, is David's uh, quest and ability to retake the territories of God. Now, the other thing I think you need to know before we go is that Judah means the place of praise, So I want you to see something here. The enemy wants to knock out for the people of God the places of praise. The enemy wants to take that from us and knock it out so that we're no longer praising, but he's in the camp and making it dark and ugly. Well, anyway, the Philistines gathered their armies in this place called Soko which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Socah and Azekah in Ephes Damim, okay? And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the Valley of Elah. Now, I did send a picture, but I don't know if our folks got it. If not, it's my fault. I was late. But anyway, uh, if you go with us to Jerusalem, Lord willing, when we go next time, we always go to the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah is an interesting thing. Down by the coast. Oh, there it is, isn't that an artsy picture? That's a little stream, artsy picture, that's the sling on five smooth stones, you get it? Isn't this amazing? Well, that's sort of staged, but uh, anyway, that is the Valley of Elah, and, uh, uh, but that, there are streams all through these, hill on one side, hill on the other side, and uh, the Valley of Elah, it's very fascinating. Because the Philistines, remember, lived at the coast. Where did Israel live? In topography. They, they lived up in the hill parts of Ju- uh, Jerusalem, Judah. Uh, the topography of Israel goes from the coast up to Jerusalem, you see. And so watch. The Valley of Elah is sort of right in the middle. Because there was always this constant... Uh, strategy that the Philistines wanted to be in the lowlands so they could ride their chariots and do some other things and be really effective. And the Israelites wanted to be up in the hills because they were better and equipped up in the uh, the perches and all that sort of thing. Well, anyway, they met in the middle and there's a place called the Valley of Elah and it's a real place and we're able to go there and uh, 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 you, you can see how one would be on one side and one would be on the other. And they Philistines stood on a mountain on one side. And uh, uh, Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp. By the way, in the Hebrew there, that word is a very interesting word for champion. It's one who sort of stands in the middle between two parties. Which is fascinating because they're really using the word here champion, a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And that's always debated about what six cubits in a span is. But trust us, or trust the commentators, or trust the experts. This was a really tall dude, probably taller than Minute Bull, and for certain uh, thicker than he was, not as skinny. Because he had a bronze helmet on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels. Some people say up to 125 pounds in a uh, coat of mail, and, uh, uh, or the coat of uh, 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. That means really heavy. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. Some people believe that's 15 pounds just for the head of the spear. And a shield bearer went before him. Do you get that? He was so big that a person walked in front of him with a big shield. One of those big full body shields, not the little ones, full ones. So he had a protector there in front of him. That's what this says. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel. And he said to them, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be your servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, listen, this is really sad. The king of Israel the one the people picked, the one that the Bible says is head and shoulders taller than anybody in Israel. You with me? Well, he was dismayed, and he was greatly afraid, and of course, the rest of the people were all dismayed and greatly afraid. One reason. It seems here in the language that Saul knows that the tall man is supposed to fight The tall man and that a servant of God the king of God the servant of God even though he is an important guy the servant of God and the tall man is the one who's to be and to go out and to fight and Saul's not ready for that in fact he's very scared and he's very dismayed he doesn't want to do it there's a knot in his stomach a pit in his stomach a terror a fear That maybe he's never known, and here he's thinking to himself, I want to save myself. I'd rather save myself than save my people. And This was a very uh, common way. You see this a couple more times in the Bible, that people say, why do we have to go and kill everybody in the army? Let's just take one from Israel and one from Philistines, and let's go out and duke it out, and whoever wins, it'll save the other people so there doesn't have to be a lot of bloodshed. Now, I have to just sort of, I know, I'm sort of, I don't have my bullet points. You all know that. That would be too easy and too organized. But, listen, here's the huge point in which David is going to be a picture of God. You see, because we don't fight to win victory. When we say the battle is won or the battle is ours, we're going to be in the battle, the battle of spiritual warfare and the world against, you know, the empire of God and the kingdom of God and the church of God. We don't say we're fighting for victory. Here's why. Because the victory has already been won. We're fighting from victory. And the point here is, let me take you to Romans chapter 5. One of the reasons that you get out of bed or you go to work on Wednesdays and you come on Sundays and you're so excited to worship the Lord is because, listen, one man was the representative for the whole bride of Christ, the whole church, and made the way for victory. One man who defeated sin and death and, in fact, In Colossians, it says that he, you know, sort of at the cross, overpowered them, uh, gave them the big uppercut, because they thought they had defeated Jesus with big weapons, which was the most terrible weapon of the time, a cross. And it was one man who defeated the whole scheme of death and the enemy, so that all of us can sort of, not sort of, can jump onto the team because of all that he did so that we don't get massacred. Oh my. In fact, you go to Romans chapter 5 and you sort of get this a little bit, Uh, right around verse 15, if I can get there, it's this. Let's go to 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense, Adam, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Just in this little fellowship. When we read the story of David and they say, you have one guy come here. And the enemy's taunting. Says, I got all the weapons. Jesus did it. And for the judgments which come from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which come from many offenses, resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, residing in justification of life, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. There it is. There's this amazing picture here right off the get-go. As Saul declines, the choice that man made, in other words, you can't make your way through man-made stuff to win the victory. It had to come... From God, amen? And so here, uh, they're really, really scared. Uh, Saul is scared. But David, here in 12 of 1 Samuel 17, was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, nothing. I mean, come on, Bethlehem's just a podunk little place, man. Whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. They go out to the valley of Elah, the oldest three. And the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. Now look, turn over with me to chapter 16, verse 6, because I want you to remember this. Remember when David was being called to be anointed? They brought out the oldest first, this Eliab guy, looking sick. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But you know, Samuel was even wrong. So, but the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance. God chooses differently. God doesn't look at appearance or position or power or image or how you dress or how many cars you have or what kind of house you have. He looked at the inward parts. He looks at the heart and the character. And what you've been with him in the lonely times, in the tough times, in the wilderness times, and with the sheep, and the stinky places of life, and the tough parts, and what you've been through. And that's what he looks at. That's what he looks at, because I have refused him, the Lord says, for the Lord doesn't see as man sees. For man looks at the outward, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass, and... He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, neither has the Lord. And he went through seven of the sons before Samuel. And Samuel said, hey, is there anybody else? And you know the story from there. And what I want you to know is that Eliab was there when all this was happening. And now he goes out to the front with the three oldest brothers. Everybody with me? So these three go out there and the they follow Saul. Ooh boy. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now here's the beginning of a man after God's own heart. So I sort of have to go back and forth here. If you can stay with me, I know I'm confusing sometimes. But it's this, is that when, you have a, when you're a man after God's own heart, you care about the things, or a woman after God's own heart, you care about the things that God cares about. And one of the things that marks you as a person after God's own heart is you care about the sheep. We talked about that. You don't just give lip service to the sheep, you care for the sheep. You don't just... Make a show of it on Sundays or on Instagram or on uh, Facebook to make people think you're uh, a shepherd of the sheep. You, you really care about the sheep. You get involved with the sheep. You don't leave the sheep alone. And yet at the same time, you're in the battle. You want to be in the battle, right? You want to go out. And you want to share and love and uh, um, talk to unbelievers, but you come back and you want to be with the sheep and disciple and help and build up. And you see that here, right, with David. He's a man after God's own heart. He cares about the sheep. And the Philistines drew near and presented himself 40 days or the, excuse me the Philistine that's important drew near and presented himself 40 days morning and evening now look what was happening there's this valley with streams running through it and five smooth stones see we found the five smooth stones but anyway there it is this place and every day that Philistine would come down and they would he would taunt the people of Israel 40 days walking back and forth yelling up on the hill you you people are cowards Why won't you send somebody down here? You think, I mean, God's name had to have been drugged through the mud, right? You guys think you're the people of God? Well, you're not even, you know, uh, brave enough to come down here and to just send one person against me. No. And on and on and on it goes. And you know this, 40 days is an important number in the Bible uh, 40, excuse me, the number 40 is important in the Bible. You know that, um, Noah, you know, it rained for 40 days and judgment was there. Remember that? And you know, uh, that Jesus, what did he do? He went out into the wilderness for 40 days. And so, uh, other things as well, as you can uh, think in your head, you know, there's more than that. But the point is, 40 days represented times of testing and trouble in the Bible, amen, for the people of God. And so you see this here, and it reminds you when you read in the New Testament, it reminds you as the person is stalking back and forth and yelling insults and intimidating. Isn't that what the enemy does for you? He shoots fiery darts. He can't possess Christians, but he tries to shoot fiery darts to you that are lies, And not appropriate. You think you're a Christian. Nobody loves you. You're all by yourself. And the Bible says you're never alone. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. You're such a loser. And the Bible says, no, you're not a loser. You're a child of God. You're a sinner saved by his grace. And now you're a child of the king. You're his royalty. You're not a loser. And on and on you goes. And it reminds you of this uh, verse. Be sober. Be sober. Be vigilant, vigilant. In other words, be right on guard. When you wake up, it's not just another morning with sun and white picket fences. It is that, and we're not being too dramatic, but you're part of a grander story. You're part of a bigger story, an eternal story, a story that's raging, a war that's raging every day between the enemy of God's people and God. And God's the victor, of course, we know that. But what is happening right now, it's that an enemy is on the earth sort of taunting God and his people by calling out lies and insults to his, the people of God. But after a time of testing, the Son of God is going to come and put all things right. Isn't that true? And that's what happens here in this, in this story. And they're going back and forth, or he's going back and forth for 40 days, morning and evening. And it looks like David arrives sort of on the final day. Look at this. Then Jesse said to his son, David, take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these 10 loaves, and and run to your brothers at this camp. Look, you know what I see here? Here's a... You know what... uh, um, people who are after God's own heart do. They obey the ones that they should obey. Now, if you're still in the household, you obey your mom and your dad, and you're out of the household, you honor your mom and your dad, and you don't you know snub your nose at them. I mean, what do you mean I have to take the cakes? What do you mean I'm taking this to my brothers? My brothers don't even like me. That could possibly be something that could come out of our mouths, but not this one. He obeys his father, And notice, he serves others. He serves others, even others who are sort of dragging his name through the mud, David's, because his brothers weren't kind to him. But he obeys his dad, and he goes and serves others. And by the way, he didn't fight with his dad about any of his positions. You you get that? Whatever position God assigned him in life, shepherd. We don't have any indication in the Bible that David went, oh God, how come I have to be a shepherd? Because that's what you would say in that context. I mean, or in that, in that culture, this was the lowest of the low. How come I have to be a shepherd? No, he, he was assigned to be a shepherd. So he went and he became the best shepherd he could be all for the glory of God. And oh, while he was there, he didn't waste it. He worshiped the Lord. He wrote Psalms and he communed with the Lord. And we went through that last time. So he takes these things, these 10 cheeses, these dried grains, these 10 loaves, gives to his brothers, gives to the captain. We see some pragmatic stuff right there or practical stuff right there. The dad was probably interested in the captain. (laughs) giving choice assignments to the three sons because like any of us, right? In battle, we wouldn't want our sons to be hurt. And so he's asking uh, uh, David to go and do that. And Saul and they and all the men, verse 19 of Israel, were in the Valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning. Boy, look at this. You really see a shepherd's heart. He left the sheep with a keeper. He took care of the sheep even when he was gone. He didn't just run off. He made sure they were okay. You get that? There was a shepherd's heart. That's what we need. That's what we have or to have when we're serving and discipling people or shepherding people. We care for them. We love them. We don't want to see them be harmed. David certainly had it, and it's a recurring theme. And he took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army, and David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Verse 23, then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the one in the middle, the Philistine of Gath. Goliath by name means exile or stripped of. Exile or stripped of. A Goliath by name coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. In other words, he just kept taunting. And he kept harassing. And he kept um, insulting. And he kept uh, trying to bring them down with his words. And he's calling them cowards and all these things. And David heard it. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, listen to this, fled from him. Can you believe it? Who? And were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up, David? And surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches. I want you to watch this. He'll enrich with great riches... He'll give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, say, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For this is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should, or for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him saying, so it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now watch this. Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from the same thing, and these people answered him as the first ones did. Now, lots to unpack real quick. They were dreadfully afraid. This is what just engulfed all of the people of God. Now watch, when the people of God were running away, I want you to see something, David was running too. And that's what a man of God or a woman of God who's filled with the spirit of God does. They run to the battle. They don't shirk the battle. They stay in the battle. They recognize the resources that are available to them And they run to the battle. They don't shirk from the battle. Because quite frankly, folks, when you're involved in ministry, it can get ugly and messy humanly and really quickly. But... The Bible asks us to stay in the battle, in prayer, on our knees, in encouragement, in sharing of the word, in praying for people, in ministering to them with food or shelter or whatever, or clothes, whatever it is, or helping them get somewhere, or what, whatever. It takes sacrifice and time, and it's really thankless lots of times. And there can be a temptation to want to run away from it, especially when the enemy's in your ears saying, you're a loser, And this isn't making any impact whatsoever in this little area of Pittsburgh. And you're running around and you're doing things and you're, and all of a sudden you can start to shy away or run away or walk away from what it is God has called you to, but not the man of God or the woman of God who's after God's own heart. They run to the battle. They move towards the battle. And they do it probably with fear like emotions coming to them and they get down on their knees and they say, Lord, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. How do I move here? Where do I go here? What what should I say? What should I do? And God fills them up with his courage and love and direction and vision and joy and peace and he sends them out into the battle. And then you'll notice this. It says that the man who kills him, the king's going to give them great riches, will give him his daughter, and basically make him live for free. And David's going to be the one that secures all this. And do I hardly have to even expand or expound upon that? It's a picture of Christ. David is going to win great riches, or excuse me, Jesus, David, the picture of, is going to win great riches. And you know, when you read, God bless you, this should excite you to no end. When you read the first chapter of Ephesians, do you know what it says? Do you know what Jesus's riches are? It's almost too hard to comprehend. He says that his inheritance is you. You're what makes it all worthwhile. You're what makes it rich for him. How about this? Number two, as we explore David as a type of Christ, you'll get his daughter. Well, we're the bride of Christ. We'll be married to him, right? Isn't that beautiful? And then finally, you're going to live for free. You're going to have a tax exemption. And isn't that so true? When we know the word, the word sets us free. We're free in Christ to live as we have always intended to live, with no restrictions or boundaries or taxes or burdens. It's not taxing to follow the Lord. It's hard and difficult sometimes, but it's not taxing. You get it? And here it is, amazing picture of Christ in David. Well, and you see it, the oldest brother, isn't that a stab in the heart? You are so prideful, David. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I sort of get mad. My flesh rises up, and it wasn't even happening to me, and it was all all these thousands of years ago. But I want you to see what David does. He pushes through his doubters. He doesn't engage and let the criticism mess with him or derail him from his mission. Sometimes even people in the family of God can be mean, like his brothers here, and say things that aren't true. But the Bible tells us several places in, uh, in the New Testament how we're to respond to criticism. Listen to this one. You'd know it. James 1, 19 and 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be quick to hear or swift to hear and slow to speak. Who needs to be slow to speak here. Raise your hand. Just some of us, but yes. Listen, for the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. When you spout off real fast, it doesn't produce righteousness. How about this, Romans 12, 14? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I'll rather boast in my infirmities, sickness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure, this is incredible, in infirmities or sickness. I take pleasure, Paul says, in infirmities and sickness. The next thing he says, I take pleasure in reproaches, I take pleasure, Paul says, in criticism. Who here loves criticism? Raise your hand. Raise it. Nobody. Paul says it's a normal part of life and they take pleasure in it, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, because why? Why? Why would Paul say that? Is it is some martyr system? No. He says for when I am weak, then I become strong. You say, we say, We pray, we pray that we want to be servants. And then when people treat us like servants, we get mad. It doesn't make any sense, amen? And so here, look at this. David, a man after God's own heart, pushes through the doubters, doesn't listen to the criticisms in a a bad sense. He doesn't let it get him down. He might take the kernels of truth and learn from it, one man says this, a heart in tune with God is unruffled by criticism. Your heart in tune with God is unruffled by criticism. And here you start seeing the eternal perspective. Set your mind on things above, the Bible tells us. How to be a man or woman after God's own heart? Don't let criticism uh, ruffle you. How do you not let criticism ruffle your heart or upset your heart? You spend a lot of time with him praying about it. And thinking about it and asking him to add that to you and to cover that over, the insecurities in your heart, because that's what responding to criticism is a lot of times, is insecurity, and I'm raising my hand here. So you do that, but then what's another thing that shows us uh, that David was a man after uh, uh, God's own heart and we can, is that he knew his heart and mind was set on something way higher than just white picket fence, vacation, uh, 401k. His was the cause of God. God's cause was his cause, you see. Isn't there a cause here? Do you think we're just out here fighting just to fight? No, this is a cause for God, David said. And you can see how he has been so filled with faith and trust obedience because the rest of the people of God are running and scared and dismayed and he comes up and he's sort of incredulous why are you running aren't we the people of God where are you why are you going backwards and retreating shouldn't be we be running to enemy lines or actually territory of God to retake and that's what he says and When the words which David spoke, 31, were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Wait a minute. He's the last of the last. He was the one that was unthought of. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're a youth And he, a man of war from his youth. And what is another thing that this teaches you right here? If you want to be a man or woman after God's own heart, if you're youthful, don't let anyone despise your youth. But if you're old like me, don't count out the youth. They're an unbelievable force that God can use for his good and his glory. And don't put out their Burning wick because you say they're too young to do it. I don't think so. And David said this all right here in 34 Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. And your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine, where it's going to be like one of them, seeing his, uh, uh, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, "The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, He'll deliver me from the hand of his Philistines." You, the Philistine, you ever felt like God wasn't using you, and you're like, God, why, why am I here? I mean, what am I doing? Why, why this? I mean, David could have really had a terrible attitude while he was a shepherd. And oh, by the way, he already knows he's going to be anointed king. He could have said, heck with shepherding. I'm the king. I'm gonna start telling my family what to do and where to go and how to be because God's picked me. But he didn't do that. You know what David did? A man after God's own heart, a girl after God's own heart, lady after God's own heart. You know what they do? Wherever God puts them, he knows or she knows that it's for their best, and for God's glory. And to participate in those places with God. In a stinky sheep area. How in the world am I going to grow and be great and be, uh, serve God? Hmm. And he starts, you know, practicing because he's sort of bored with the sling. Poom. Poom. Boom. And then he starts to think, you know, these lions, these bears keep picking off my sheep. Well hmm, sling, I'm going to get good at this sling. Nobody could kill a lion or a bear. Nobody could do this. And all of a sudden, here's David, whap, and grabbing him right by the, poom the beard. And he developed his skills in a time that was probably pretty boring, we would say, or lonely, we would say, or in a place where maybe he didn't even think God had any plans for him. And God He's looking around, Sheep, stinky, night, by myself, what am I going to do? And here he is out there exercising faith, practicing uh, something that God had put right in front of him, boom, boom, boom. He didn't waste his time with God. He He invested his time. He didn't spend, you know, just spend it wildly. Well, you see that, and so... Saul said to David in verse uh, 37, go and the Lord be with you. And so Saul clothed David with his armor, put a bronze helmet on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor, tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I can't walk with these. I haven't tested them. So David took them off. And this tells you this. In the economy of God and God, if you wanted to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, When you step out in faith in something, it might not be the same way that it happened for somebody else. And so you don't have to try and copy or mimic. There's principles, there's things that you can do, yes, but you don't have to look like, you know, whoever. Somebody started a homeless ministry and it's, you know, they're serving all these people and all these people are getting saved. And we run down there and we say, this is what I should do. And okay, this is what I should do. Instead of being in the lonely places with God saying, Lord, what should I do in what you've called me to do? I don't have to put on somebody else's coat of armor. It's uncomfortable and it doesn't fit and it doesn't work. And he didn't need it and he didn't train with it. And so he took a staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And many people, and I want you to be a Berean right here, believe five is the number of grace in the Bible. You go and read that. And if that's true, look at this. What did David fight with? The stones, and they represent, what is uh, 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 you know, the people of God, Men after, women after God's own heart, what do they operate with? And they use, they use the grace of God to defeat the enemy. It's incredible. God, uh, Jesus, a type of David, he was the ultimate gift, which speaks of grace. And so they put them in a shepherd's bag and a pouch, which he had sling in his hand, drew near to the Philistine. Philistine came and began drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. He said, well, this is over. Victory for the Philistines. Why would you send that dog out here? He was only a youth, ruddy, good-looking. So the Philistine said, Am I a dog that you came to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, and the Philistine said to David, Come to me. Oh, by the way, you know uh, Goliath was saying, Our gods are better than your god. Your god doesn't even show up. That's probably what he was saying. And the Philistine cursed David, and the Philistine said, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine's, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the character and nature of the Lord. That's what he's saying, in the name of the Lord. I have the character, I have the attributes, I have a God who is a protector and a shield and a refuge and fights our battles. Uh, The Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you've defied, and this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I'll strike you and take your head from you. And this day I'll give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and wild beasts, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Now, how did he get to speak like this? How? How could David speak like this? Is this conjure up faith by saying, Hey, man, if I develop faith, all these bad things will go away. That's what a lot of Christian pastors will tell you. Just develop some faith, man. Have faith. More faith you have, the better it's going to be for you. You'll get stuff. You'll defeat... But that's not this. He has faith because he spent time with the Lord and he's tested and tried him, not in a bad way, but he's seen what the Lord has done. And he bases it on remembrance and what God's done in the past and how God has been and what he's like and who he is. And he spent time there with him and he knows him intimately or as intimately as a person can know. And when he gets out into the next trial or battle, real scary, real scary. This man can speak the words of faith because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And Jesus marveled at one person's lack of faith and one person's faith. It's a word that's only used twice in the New Testament of Jesus. And faith is important. You plug into the power of God. It's not your faith that does anything. It's the person behind the faith, God, who can do it all and has done it all. Amazing. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord doesn't save with the sword, for the battle is the Lord's, and he'll give it into your hands. So it was when the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistines. Then David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and he slung it. Remember, he'd practice. And they can throw these things. I forget. We saw a person at a family camp one time who was an expert in these things. And I forget the amount, the miles per hour, but I think it was like 60 or 70 or 80. And these things, if they hit you, you were toast. Yeah, that's what I said too. Uh, but I mean, it's fast. And uh, so uh, anyway, he practiced. Instruct the Philistines so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face uh, to the earth. Look, Look back real quick to 1 Samuel chapter five, real quick. Oh, I went too far past. Uh, Look at 1 Samuel chapter five, verse two. Remember the Philistine gods when they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon, look what happened. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon falling on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in his place again. And when they arose the next morning, there was Dagon falling on its face. And look down later, the head of Dagon and both the palm of its hands were broken off. And they got Dagon out of the temple, you see. And this is a, a literary technique that reminds the enemies of God that the one true and living God is better than any God and is unique. And he fell on his face. And David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it, and out of his sheep killed him and cut off his head with it. And there will be more later on that in the Old Testament. But I want you to see something very quickly. David took the enemy's weapon and won the victory. <laughs> Jesus took the enemy's weapon, the thing that they meant for terror and awful evil, and turned it around for good for all of eternity, folks. And that's the picture that they're showing you there. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted, pursued the Philistines, Uh, To the gates of Ekron, and the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sherim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Uh, But he put his armor in his tent. Now you're going to see these things, these emblems of war, later on. But when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner! whose son is this youth? Now, remember, David had already played the harp for Saul, but some people believe, you know, some good bit of time had expired between the prior chapter. And also, he's only asking who the dad is. So maybe he just doesn't know who the dad is. You understand what I'm saying? But anyway, Abner said, as your soul lives of king, I don't know. So the king said, inquire whose son this man is, because remember, he's going to pay off with marriage and taxes and then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Woo, that must have been a thick head too, buddy. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the Bethlehemite. And I want to read you something real quick, and I'm going to ask Mike to come up here. 1 Corinthians 1.27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. I'm going to get a jump on next week because I want to read you one more thing. And when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. I want you to see this. Who's Jonathan in the story? I think the Jonathan is you. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. Jesus makes a covenant with us. You ever wondered why this story's in here? Well, Jesus made a covenant with you. It's the covenant of grace. It's by his blood. He loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. And he just said, listen, just take everything that I trusted in, my kingly robes, because remember, he's... (laughs) I did this. He's second in line, or he's next in line. He really has the right to the throne politically here. But he takes it off, and then he takes his implements of war off, the things that he trusted in all his life, and commits his life to David. So David went out, and wherever Saul sent him, and behaved wisely. And I just want us to see this, you know, as, as we, we're going to uh, sing one more worship song here, as we conclude, I mean, that's what we've done. We've heard the things of God, we've listened to the gospel, and what we've said is this, is that we're giving it all up for the one who shed his blood. And it says that Jonathan and David's soul, they were knit together. And Jesus tells us that he's the bread of life. And that when we take him in, oh boy. And when we do it with the bread and the juice, we're remembering all that Christ has done. And we're saying, we're going to strip away, we're going to allow you, Lord, just to strip away all the things that we've always relied upon. And we just want to follow you and uh, be connected to you and uh, love you because you've made this covenant with us. And so here, here's what I'm just going to say is, as, as Mike is uh, worshiping for us, uh, you get up, the basket's back there, Grab yourself uh, a cup. And then I'm not going to come back up here and administer. You're you're just going to take the elements yourself. And at the end of the song, I'll come up and pray together. Okay? We take uh, communion in a worthy manner. You're saved. You're filled with the Spirit. You're saying to the Lord, I thank you for all that you've done. And we say it in Jesus' name.